0: Welcome to the show where we invite CTOs into our studio to chat about issues and challenges we're all facing, to share ideas and to help each other out. So today we have Augustine leading a conversation for us on compensation strategies and the general craziness out there. And we talk about staffing strategies around contracting versus full-time hires versus internship programs versus mentorship. Hope you enjoy it. From
1: seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne, and you're in the CTO studio.
2: So by way of recap, a lot of what I work on is helping companies think through some of their hiring challenges and so their management challenges. And so Cobb comes up a lot in our conversations. The, am I crazy for wanting to pay this? Where can I get a person for this price? All this kind of stuff. These people aren't commodities. And so what you have to do is, is think about each individual situation individually. Comp is a function of your profitability. That's a big deal. How do I know what profitability means? My thought was to put up a little case study of a thing we did. So here's the story. So we had two non-technical founders. They had an idea for an app, it was this music thing. And so their playbook was, okay, we need to create an app, but we're not technical people. We don't know what we're doing on the tech side. The playbook is go speak to lots of dev shops and get a bid. And then build a business plan. The alternative, obviously, is to bring on a technical co-founder and build the tech team in-house. Now, the thing here is the technology makes a big difference. The technology makes all the difference. In fact, if you're not doing, if the technology in the app is fairly commoditized, then almost definitely the dev shop wins. What we're doing here is figuring out what the business needs and what it's going to cost to do that. Before we go off and figure out who do we need to hire and how much do we need to pay them? That's kind of like, who do we need to hire and how, we need, how much do we need to pay them? Comes second. Biggest lesson, I think, is understand your edge as a company. What is it that your company is special at? If the company is special at building software, special software, stuff that like almost nobody else can build, then yeah, like thinking very hard about who do I need to hire and these sorts of things is probably like the most important thing you can think about. Let's face it, like most software work is, as Ryan famously said last week, this is blue collar work. And we could probably teach a lot of people to do this kind of commoditized work, at least 90% of it. And so where is the right place to hire that person? What is the right mechanism for that set of people to come in and contribute usefully to the company or to the business? That's where's your edge. this big question. And then the other question, obviously, is price the work first, not the team. It's very obvious for people in agencies because agency people have to do this. And so they're actually probably better than people who aren't in agencies at any of this. You figure out what it is the customer needs, whether it's an external or internal customer, figure out how much it's going to cost, how much value there is in doing that, how much it's going to cost to do that. And then you figure out how to build a team to make that happen, not putting the cart before the horse. And Something that's subtle here, especially for a lot of tech leaders, is sometimes knowing the tech hurts you. If you're a non-technical founder, you don't have a you don't have a clue what it's gonna cost to build a piece of software. In some sense, that's that can be an advantage, right? Because then you're forced to go out to the broader market and say, okay, what dev shops can I talk to? What are they gonna do for me? What are the trade-offs, et cetera. Whereas when you know the technology, Sometimes you're like, I know how to like run a software team, so I'm just going to do that, whether it's the kind of the right thing to do or not. So that's my first story. But I I want to immediately open it up to conversation to everybody else. Like, does this sort of model is this something you guys do or think about, or or how do you go about this idea of pricing out the cost of, of building something and the value of doing so?
3: I think what you said, Augustine, about understanding your edge, though, is probably the important point. Even if you're a startup, there's going to be work in your startup that's probably not core IP. It just could just be like setting up some backend infrastructure that's got really no value add per se. That's not the edge of your company, but it's work that needs to get done. So that's the interesting question is um, that maybe we could talk about is you guys have, you guys feel like you have a good idea of where your edge is and where it's not and how well calibrated are we on that question?
4: The story definitely hits home in terms of this is the exact process that our founders went through. Our CEO, and original founder, actually did the process of sourcing the work through a, a local development agency, built the initial version of the product, and, and then I came on board about six months uh, post-launch to take everything over. And I think one of the, the big takeaways that he had that I think surprises a lot of first-time founders in this situation... Is not necessarily the upfront cost, but the lack of awareness around the ongoing t- costs of once you have that technology in place, there's maintenance, there's improvements, there's new features, there's all kinds of stuff. And that's what drove him to identify a CTO, technical co-founder. Pretty early on in the process because he felt like he was getting not necessarily nickel at the dimes because there were things that he was asking for, but just realizing, oh my gosh, there's more to cost to this than just the initial, whatever it was, 200K that he put in to have the app built. And I've talked to a lot of other early stage, non-technical founders in the in at least the Birmingham community that have run into that exact the same issue, whether they get some off the ground, they launch it. And then it's like, okay, now we know what we need for the market and we need X, Y, and Z. And oh my God, that's going to cost me another 500K from this dev shop. So what do I do now? I don't know that answers the question. No, but. It,
2: it absolutely does. I think that this is the interesting part is, okay, so I found out that the dev shop is going to charge me another like half a million dollars to do this. So I guess I have to hire my own team and do it myself. And and that transition from A to B is, I think, kind of the point where it gets really interesting. What is it that makes you believe that's they're going to be able to do that for a better rate than the dev shop that's presumably really good at it?
4: And that was something we experienced, actually, basically day one when I started. Task number one was go with him to the dev shop we've been working with, and they had this whole plan for this new Subscription feature we were going to add. And, and my question to our founder was, What's the value prop here? Is this, has this been value, validated with customers? What are we trying to get out of this? And he was like, Oh my God, I never even thought about that. <laughs> People just said I should have a subscription because that makes more revenue. And so we were going to build it. So I think that's something that us as tech leaders, especially in early stage startups, so really in companies of any size, is uh, a lot of the value we to bring is helping the business understand what the value of the tech is and ask and, and that question and not just build it because we can, we have the resources or whatever.
3: I feel like we're not quite yet at the golden age of contracting out. Maybe this whole work from home COVID thing will bring us to this new thing. Just to use a metaphor, maybe I'll butcher this a little bit. But if you look at, for example, like the on-prem versus cloud transition, right? So it is a no-brainer. People were, why should I set up my own servers? That's not my edge. My edge is not managing a server farm. So obviously I'm going to just, you know, pay whatever, Amazon, to, to host that side of my business. And I feel like that same kind of thought process can be applied naturally to our workforce. We can think about parts of the business that aren't core, like setting up servers, if you will. And then use contract labor at lower prices to do that. I feel like some smart companies are doing that, but it's not quite the mainstream thought. It's still this idea of I have my group and I manage my group.
5: Yeah, I've spent the better part of the last 20 years coming in and cleaning up from dev shops that kind of missed the mark. Like most of my clients would go out to a dev shop, they expected they were going to get something, they'd spend a bunch of money on it, and then what they got back wasn't what they expected. And now... They like, we spent this money on this, but we needed to do this. And some of it was the dev shop's fault because they just didn't do a good job. But a lot of it was that they didn't know how to communicate what they wanted with the dev shop and because they were non-technical or didn't right. have that experience. And so there's this big divide between that. And I think that's one of the things that gets overlooked a lot with, especially the story one, the non-technical founders who are going to go out to a dev shop, if they don't know what they need to communicate to that dev shop and how they need to do it, ultimately, they're going to wind up being disappointed with what they get or it's going to run way over budget what they think because when they start getting something back and realize, oh, we we didn't spell this out. Or for myself, building building out, I'm looking at starting internally and building from there. And then if I have some a strong internal team that can outsource some of the smaller stuff to the dev shop,
3: feels to me like that's going to give me better results. Yes, that does feel like the right answer. You have a core team that can keep the train on the tracks, but then you don't want to be spending expensive labor doing work that frankly isn't that high value. That that seems like the sweet spot.
2: I want to bring in Steven because I, I know Steven and James certainly see the other side of this coin a little bit. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on where, what from your perspective.
6: I think what Chris just mentioned over here is so critically important. It's challenging to work with folks that are not technical. We, we do this a lot of times. People come with a particular idea and y- you need to have somebody that has enough of the energy on either side, right? If we're working with somebody and we have a vested interest and in, we want to make sure that they get it right, we are going to go above and beyond and really spell a lot of these details out to, to that other side. If you don't have a firm that's going to do that on our side to, to answer those questions or ask the questions that you're not asking and fill in those details, you're, the, the project's going to go off track. So that's why it's usually, it's very helpful when there's somebody on the other side that could speak that language language with you and that you're able to clearly articulate it. I think people if they if to the story about building that team in house, there's a fear that you outsource this and then that company goes out of business or they're not doing it correctly, so you, it's hard to trust somebody on the other side of this wall and that communication to a party external to your company is very taxing. I think a lot of people don't want to do that. They want to be able to have this real quick internal conversation that feels a little bit easier for some reason. That person's working for you. I don't have to be more political or or, or have that business speak as I'm communicating from my company over to the other company. I think that folks have, some non-technical people have been seduced by this idea of this 100X developer, uh, young gun guys are going to come in there and get you something very quickly, but they're not building a solid foundation for the application. I think it was David that was talking about, are we doing this? Are we asking the right questions from a stability? Where is this ultimately going to go? And I've been in situations where we do that. We do that analysis. We do that planning. That's part of the value add of a more mature organization to say, it's costing this much because we're doing all of this. And then you get that one young gun that's on the other side that says, no, you don't need to do all this. I did this over the weekend. And it just disrupts your whole thing. And it's so hard to articulate. That's great. But it's not going to do the 75% of the remaining that you're asking for. And, and communication just breaks down.
5: The The definition of the 100Xer is different on both sides. Like the one side is the 100Xer could do all this stuff, but they really aren't doing the right stuff. They're, exactly. they're pretending like they're the right stuff is building something maintainable, understanding the DevOps environment and being able to understand that, This is how we need to build the system out so that it can scale and so that people can come in and maintain it and we can outsource some of it off to a dev shop or something like that. That's to me the 100Xer. The person who understands the whole system
6: And can manage all of the working parts. Agreed. I think from the other party, they're hearing this is over-engineering. My problem is not that hard. I have the simple problem. I don't have the hard problem as the other people. So they hear this as over-engineering, and they're afraid of that.
2: That's the problem, right? Is obviously there is there is obviously some incentive for a dev shop to at the margin, I'd rather build one more hour than not. And so they're always like they're thinking about that the whole time, right? And so I think part of the value that's a little bit hidden in bringing your development in-house is that you're not faced with this sort of transactional relationship quite as much. And so that's the thing I think that leads people down this path, even if it's not necessarily,
7: in spite of all these things, better for them. I think a lot of this stuff comes back to understand your edge. And and maybe we need to be thinking broadly about that question. For example, do you have unusual compliance or security requirements? Do, Do you need data encrypted at REST? Do you need data encrypted and decrypted on the fly? Do you have resiliency requirements that are maybe broader than other folks have? Do you have unusual reporting requirements or tracing requirements? I need to be able to trace this transaction all the way back to the source. Do you have unusual requirements for control over your intellectual property where an offshore company, depending on the location of that offshore company, might or might not give you recourse if there's a leak of certain information. And you probably need somebody at least on call, consultant or on staff one another who can keep an eye on these things and go research these questions if you, if any of them apply to you.
5: Another big one that in my experience they they get wrong is what is the level of the user of your product? And a lot of times products are developed by with this belief that the user is going to be highly technical or something. And then the end users really aren't. And the product's not designed that way. And so when the product makes it into the hands of the the target user, it fails to meet all their expectations because it wasn't, the developers didn't understand who the target user was. And so they developed it to meet the spec, but not necessarily to match what, who's going to be using it.
2: And I think this is another sort of very frequent failure mode of very early and largely non-technical startups is... They think that it's, I have an idea, and then I get a technical person to build the app, whereas it's actually, I have an idea, and now I need to do all of the product management work to figure out what app to build. I've seen it
5: over and over again, where two co-founders get together, and they're like, oh my God, if we just had the app for this, it would be perfect. Well, let's go out and build it. Oh, wait, what about our customers? What if, there's no thought about, how do we get just an MVP? Can we do it on paper before we actually spend money in the dev resources?
3: To circle back to what Jeff was saying, I think as an exercise, just writing down what your edge is over your competition, what is your competitive distinction, writing it down, and then doing the mapping of where your staff is spending their time. It can be actually just very revealing, right? You can. I did it with my team at one point and I realized I had some very highly paid engineers doing some work that was frankly not part of the edge. It was just they just got that assignment just because the day-to-day flow and there wasn't any intentionality behind it. And then I realized, why am I spending so many dev resources, like so many smart people on stuff that isn't core to my mission? And when you start to think that way, then that's, I think, where you can get into some, like this question of comp, which we're trying to answer. That's where you can start to kind of slice it better and really start to get the value. I think, Augustine, that's where we left last time was, how do you think about the marginal value of each employee? I think that's really the key It's figuring out what they're working on and, and is it part of your competitive edge. Yeah.
2: And I think this is a good little segue into maybe the second case study that I wanted to at least briefly talk about. Uh, so story number two, this is a more recent story. Another company that Paul and I work with. So their startup, they're doing almost $2 million ARR and their clear plan to get to four with a bit more staff. And they might even be able to with some contracts, good contracts, get to six by the end of, by the end of this year, actually, with a bit more R&D. And so their plan was, okay, we're going to set aside four hundred fifty thousand dollars. They had a couple of developers, and one of the co-founders is leading the development, but he wants to go to more executive role. So they want to hire a director of engineering, one product manager, and a couple of devs for four fifty. The problem was, and this is where we had a tough conversation, honestly. Is listen, you're just never going to get a good director of engineering for one hundred fifty k. That's just the reality. And so a lot of what we did is try to change the conversation around. It's not like it's got to be one fifty for this and then one hundred for that. But let's think of the four fifty as an aggregate budget. And so the key here is it's actually much easier to think about the value to the company of a team as opposed to a person. What is the marginal revenue that a new hire will get us? Then figure out how much. what's the maximum we can pay that person to get us that revenue. That's actually hard at the individual level, but it's actually much easier at the team level. And so the direction we ended up agreeing to go is, okay, let's budget 200K for that kind of VP of engineering a product and then do some offshore development with the rest of the money. And so, again, I think an important lesson, and this is a slightly larger company, but still not very big, but I think this does scale incredibly highly, is it's very easy to anchor to, okay, I need this person in this role and I need to pay them this much. And this much is defined by San Francisco rates or whatever. And the other thing is, Again, separating the IP work from the housekeeping and being very ruthless about those costs of stuff that you need to do, but that isn't super, super core and key. Again, this is another story, this is more recent, that that Paul and I went through in terms of thinking about the value of a team as being the thing that you can actually more clearly think about, as opposed to the value of an individual engineer. And shuffling things around within the team is an easier thing to do, at least from our perspective.
6: That's a great, that's a great point. And I I was actually going to mention this. So we're an agency and yeah, totally. When we bring people on board, we are evaluating that individual and seeing their experience. I'm putting a model together. We have tools and stuff to gauge where I believe that individual's at. This is a big part of the equation that I'm looking at my contracts. I have different accounts that I work on. We Our specialty is long-term strategic engagement. So I like to partner with companies, stay with them long-term. So I'm looking at the benefit of that individual on that particular contract. And I we're, we're trying to balance the profitability, on a contract perspective, not always on an individual. So that's, this is a huge part of what we look at as well, because there's, there, there is this really difficult, not quantifiable value add of that individual that they're going to be a multiplier to other folks. How do you really, how do I see that? Is that person's a great cultural fit? Are they going to just ask the right questions? Are they going to be a joy to work around? And that's going to drive the morale of other people. It's hard to put a dollar to that.
2: Exactly. Especially when you get to, to points where we're not talking about individual contributors, we're talking about engineering managers. We're talking about team leads. We're talking about maybe directors that are managing a set of managers. Like, what's the value of a director? But if you ask me, what's the value of the team that the director is in charge of? I should be able to put a pretty good number on that.
6: You do run into a little trouble, though, if that person is leaving that team. So now you have somebody who's the big boat to float, and they're going to go to a smaller pond. (laughs) It's it's not going to work.
2: Yeah. So anyway, I I think the bigger picture... The question here, obviously, on on comp is sometimes it's really hard to say, I want to hire an X and I can only afford to pay Y. And it seems like the supposed market rate is Z. And yeah, sometimes you're stuck there and that's a business problem. You have to reevaluate your business. But sometimes you can do a little shuffling around and save elsewhere by being a little bit more more strategic over time.
6: Yeah, I was going to say part of this exact topic, how much would you advise having that conversation with that individual as well. Hey, you're coming in at a higher rate because of all this other stuff. I am willing to do this because I'm expecting all these other things out of you. We we have that. I just want to use this a
2: no, absolutely. I, I love that. Another client I worked with last week last year, he said, "Look, I asked him, what are you thinking in terms of in terms of comp for this position? You wanted to hire a director of engineer, a director of engineering." And he's like, "Look, honestly, if they say 200, then that's fine. If they say 300, that might be fine too." but I'm going to evaluate your performance as if it's a $300,000 job. You know what I mean? Like
3: it it, right. it it, has to scale. Actually, yeah, there's an interesting postscript to the case study you put, Augustine, that actually speaks to what you're talking about too, Stephen, which is, so for that director engineering job, like I think in your text, Augustine, you had that they bumped it to 200. But what was really quite interesting is when they started interviewing candidates, part of the job description for that director was they were going to have to go be the ones to hire those devs. And one of the things that they did which i thought was what we talked about with them was if when it comes to salary negotiation if they want more than 200 they said we're open to that but the thing is that's then going to eat into the budget that i'm going to give you to go hire your downlines you can in other words actually and that can actually be quite empowering to someone cuz you could say to someone look instead of me telling you this is your salary i want you to think of it as you got $400,000 to pay for yourself and the team you want to build so how do you, how do you want to share that? Or how do you want to be part of the solution? And interestingly, it turned out being a, quite an advantage in the hiring process because the person actually felt empowered. So oh, you're actually giving me $400,000 to play with. I know some connections from the group can do a little bit of offshoring. I know this other guy that I can hire. That could be actually a, a tool in your toolbox.
6: That is very interesting that you're tying them to the whole ship. Have you ever seen somebody downgrade their salary though? Say, so, okay, I want to bring on these other folks. I'm going to take, right? It's, yes. it's, it's Yes.
2: Okay. Co-founders. So oh, we, worked yeah, with the company, yeah. we worked with a company where they were paying, like it was a tiny company. They were paying themselves 200 grand in in, in salary. And and once you explain the math of like, you own 40% of this company, right. self-funded, right? You own 40% of this company. If you take $100,000 out of your pocket and okay, you got to eat ramen one more time a week or something, and you can hire some people to increase the the business value by a few million dollars, that is clearly the thing you should be doing right now.
3: Yeah. That's where the equity comes in. That's, exactly. what you would, that's what you would tell a director as well. Maybe take a pay cut and I'll give you a larger share of the company.
2: And the the cool thing there, and, and, and we see this again and again, is like, how do I compete with Fang who's paying all these cash salaries? Like, you're not. And the reason you're not is because if you can find the person that truly believes in your company, that is engaged with your mission and that totally buys in, then financially it makes sense for them to take less cash and more equity in your company than more cash and less equity at Facebook. But you have to find that alignment.
5: Well, and some of this, I think, comes down to just the title, Director of Engineering. That title means 30 different things based on 30 different companies that you'd be hiring for. You're a Director of Engineering that's managing a small team of five to eight developers, or are you managing a team of 30 developers and a budget of this and and what's expected to get done? So if you think about the tasks that need to get done and then try to hire The people to cover all of those bases and all those tasks with some redundancy too, right? In case someone disappears, leaves the project, and now you're not, everybody else is completely screwed for three months while you try to find somebody else to replace them. But I think that it comes back to the budgeting for a team or budgeting for getting a specific business goal done, and then maybe the three hundred thousand dollar director of engineering is worth that because they can. Make they can utilize that budget better and get more done with it, or, or uh, at least accomplish the goals that you're
2: trying to get. So this actually reminds me of uh, Paul and I were talking about this last night, and Paul told me a somewhat hilarious story <laughs> from his past life at a large San Diego company.
3: The yeah, the product management story. Yeah, yeah, it's a big company story, but it's interesting because it can't apply to smaller things. So there, there was yeah, my former employer, product management had an idea for a new product and. They went to the engineering group and asked the engineering group to price it out. And I'll just pick some numbers. The engineering group said, yeah, it'll cost $10 million to do that. And big companies, product management and engineering, it's almost like working with an agency. There's big silos there. So the engineering group said it's $10 million. Product management said, we don't have a business then. So they can't be 10 million. And engineering said, go pound sand. It's going to cost 10 million, get lost. So then product management did something like a clever end run where they actually went to an agency and the agency quoted them 5 million. And so product management of this company actually went and did an end run around their own engineering team and hired contract labor to do it. And of course, engineering was like massively pissed off. We can't do this. You have to do it in-house. And then the whole thing escalated to upper management. And the question is, why can't, why is your internal engineering department so sad? Why do we have to use you guys for everything if you're too expensive? And ultimately, the product management kind of won the argument, right? Because the CFO looks at it like, what's the difference now? Of course, the, the thing you have to remember that story is it's not just the cost of the work, it's the maintenance, everything you guys have said. But I do think that it's still valid in the sense of, it's what Augustine, what you talked about with this anchoring effect. We get anchored to our current team, our current rates, and we don't think about, is this really the right cost structure for the work I'm trying to get done and the right value prop.
6: Yeah, it's a very interesting scenario. And I've been part of exact situations like this. I think it's actually pretty common. In one respect, it's how dare you. The other one is it's a check and balance. It's actually, as a company... Yep. It's healthy for them to look at this. Otherwise, they're just going to accept this bloat, right? I I agree, Steven.
3: The healthy version of the story is go get the price quote. You don't have to hire them. At least the value of the work. I think that's really a valuable data point. One of the things I struggle with that scenario, which I've had multiple times because we have a very small engineering team for the amount of work that the company wants
1: done. So you say no to a, a group and then that group will go and They'll be like, oh, I'll just hire contractors to do this. And I'm like, if the company wants to increase
3: the engineering budget, then we should increase the engineering budget. Like that isn't going outside and paying contractors to do something that we've decided as a company is not a priority. Like it just doesn't make sense to me. Yes, that is the downside of thinking like a CFO, because the CFO will always just go for bigger and bigger margins. It's like, oh, we're making more money. Great. We don't have to invest in more RD. Let's just keep going fatter margins. But yeah, you have to have a you have to have that handshake at some point you have to invest in the RD. it's free yeah
2: and i think part of the the way this gets solved is to recognize again getting back to to what jeff was saying about the edge what is the internal engineering team uniquely good at do it's probably a lot of integration stuff it's probably a lot of tacit built up internal company knowledge about the customer about about the the world about the market all the stuff that's actually hard to price but it's real and so if the project or something really requires a lot of that kind of deep inbuilt knowledge that's in the company, then yeah, it's going to cost more because you're amortizing that knowledge over time. And if it's not, if it's like, I already have everything, I just need to put a new UI on something, maybe not. It, it's Engineering is not uh, a commodity product, right? It is very much a, a custom bespoke thing, at
6: least for now. <laughs> I think that's the role of the senior tech leadership and CTOs in these companies to be the voice for that engineering department to say, oh, you go outside, we're not going to get all these things. That knowledge is external and all that stuff. And that's the, the value of the CFO, not just following the money and hopefully the CTO or the chief technical person, that's the be officer, but is, is advising them.
3: And you know what? That's a great point, Steve. The CTO needs to be able to speak in those dollar terms. Exactly. Right. You can't, if the CFO says X is smaller than Y, this is less money. I'm going to go with X. It's less money. The CTO has to come back with not like technical gobbledygook. You don't understand technical debt they actually have to be able to put a dollar price on the long-term maintenance and say your short-term cost is lower, but your long-term cost isn't. And you got to be able to speak dollars to that or the CFO is not going to hear you. I think uh, this may be uh,
4: selling your your engineering department short, potentially in the long-term. But I, I think in a way, this can also be almost reframed as a way to empower the rest of the organization to solve their own problems, just knowing how expensive it is to build an engineer products, it gives the rest of the organization permission to not go, can I find a solution for 50 bucks? But can I find a solution out there that I can buy for 5K or 50K? And it's still going to be much more cost-effective than trying to build X in-house that may or may not have proven value behind it at that
2: point. And the cool thing about it is, this impairment goes both ways because now engineering is has a seat at the table in making business level decisions because they have something to say. They have something important, critically important. That they know, and so training engineering leadership, even down to the individual contributor level, about the value of the work that that you're doing, that just repays its in, in benefits up and down the chain. Stephen and I were talking last night. About the difference
5: between this software industry going towards commoditization and we weren't getting into it, but like the no-code kind of trends. And ultimately, it is engineering. You wouldn't go build a bridge and hire the cheapest. Someone comes by and says, Oh, I can build that bridge for half the price of that, but they're not a real engineering firm and the bridge is going to collapse and everyone's going to die six months later. There's a trust that engineering sometimes is the right way to solve these problems. And I guess there, there's a balance there between how much do you invest in really engineering a solution versus throwing together something that, okay, maybe will prove a, a concept, but isn't going to be, you know, maintainable long-term?
2: Yeah, I think there's an interesting thing here. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is in some important ways, software is too cheap. It's too easy to do. If you were building a bridge, you only get one shot at it. Or maybe if you're really lucky, two shots at it, but like the Tacoma Narrows bridge, but mostly just one shot at it. Whereas like in software, it's like, oh, I'm going to put something out. And it's like, oh, there's a bug. Okay, I'm going to hot fix it. And we're all very agile. Nothing wrong with agile. Agile's great. It's a very good way to do business when you iterate towards an end product. But the downside of it is you can go way too far in the other direction of, okay, let's just do something incremental. And and pretty soon you're left with a mess where, like you said, Chris, a bit of engineering at the outset probably would have been more efficient. So it's like you software gives you these tools in terms of organizing teams and in terms of putting out software to the world that other places don't have, but there's a, there's a double-edged sword there.
6: Yeah, I don't want the theme here to be like, oh, get the agency. I mean, I'm an agency. So I want people to get agencies. But there's some something to be said about if a company is doing it internally, they could quite often reinvent the wheel. If you go to an external firm who's doing this with a lot of other folks, I don't know, maybe we've seen a little bit more. We're working with a lot more organizations supposed to to in a product internally. So uh, there's some value, I think, to be added.
5: Reinvent the wheel or also just do it wrong. Yeah. We're talking about Ruby on Rails. I'm a big Ruby person, but if you hire some junior dev to come build your platform on it, well, Ruby on Rails, I can build it really quickly. Yeah. Well, Yeah, but a year later, nobody else can maintain it. You've got to throw it all out and start all over because the cheap, inexpensive junior developer yeah, they were able to get something up and running, but they didn't know what they were doing and it's all going to come a dev shop may do it much better job initially
2: for a little bit more money or. Yeah, and it's not even the the junior developer necessarily. This goes up and down the chain. I I do a lot of auditing of technical interviews for for clients. I just sit there and listen. And I was in one yesterday and this is a 12-year experienced engineer applying for a job and and so she didn't know string.split like she spent half an hour like coding a very like a bug farm of 40 lines of string dot split like it was insanity to listen and to watch but i feel like there's the, one of the overarching things we can do is figure out ways to write less code is probably a really important
3: thing that that sort of goes up and down the the chains of abstraction and this gets to the, to software is hard again, because I guess what we're circling around is like the economics of software are like, we don't have this problem in other industries. So like, as a, for instance, I'll tell you another quick Qualcomm story from 20 years ago. Qualcomm used to be in the phone business and they used to assemble phones in La Jolla, California. They had a factory and those are the, that live in San Diego, like La Jolla is like a zip code that's right up there with Beverly Hills It's one of the most expensive zip codes in the US, and they built an, a phone assembly plant and had low skill labor putting together phones. So the CFO, CEOs see this, they're like, this is insane. Like, we will not compete assembling phones in the equivalent of Beverly Hills. So they offshored it. So the question is what the problem is in software, the equivalent exists, but it's not obvious. You could have somebody getting paid a lot of money to do the equivalent of assembling phones, and you're not going to see it. The CFO won't see it. No one's going to see it. It's actually the CTO's job to have that sort of x-ray vision and be like, dude, why are we doing this? This is insane. We can do this much cheaper by having a different tech.
5: Then are you paying a premium for that
3: knowledge? And sometimes the premium's worth it. I'm not like Mr. Hey, like, send everything to India. I'm saying, no, what's the work that's like really the, the low skill kind of labor? And what's the stuff that's like super premium and pay a lot for the premium stuff and the other stuff you got a question.
5: Which I think comes back to the original idea: Do you outsource from the the start, or do you get build an internal team that knows what needs to be done, and then use that internal team to decide what gets out? Yeah,
3: absolutely. You can't write. You can't just write a check and magically you'll get a great product. That that doesn't work. Yeah, and honestly, that's where we step in a lot of the time. Is for companies that are that
2: kind of just need to understand how to navigate that decision is like, and a lot of that is is just okay, well, let's sit down and think hard about this and maybe use a few frameworks
3: to make that decision. And they can go either way. I think, I guess, one of the words you used that I like on that slide was anchoring. This is the problem, right? As soon as you put an open, as soon as you put a job rec out on a webpage, director of engineering, 200K, you're now anchored. Like that rec is live. You're, that 200 grand is probably gone as far as you're concerned. And you're going to hire the rest of the team assuming that money's already spent. And we probably don't do enough of, oh, like just resets on, okay, what's my total aggregate budget? Am I getting what I want out of that budget? Because again, like just, we build up these, you know, anchors and we build up this history and we need to hit the reset button a little bit more.
1: So just an additional question on that. Like, so say you have the 400K budget, just planning to, okay, build it for a 400K. What if you could build it for less? What how How do you manage that incentive right yeah if you like with the offshoring a remote first culture you can usually take the cost down like dramatically so how could you incentivize that because that's what we do we have like a remote first company we have tons of growth companies grown like 20x past five years and and we're like we don't say okay we have this money to build this we say more okay let's build this huge value let's Get as much value with that as we can.
2: This is great, Jose. And uh, this is a wonderful segue to what I think would be a great conversation to have in our third conversation, which is comp structure, salary, discretionary cash bonus, equity. All of these things are tools in our toolbox to be able to incentivize the right thinking and the right behavior, profit share, all this stuff. So, to your question, Jose, like, what if we can do it for less? How am I going to incentivize somebody to do that? if? metaphorically speaking, you save $100,000 and 20 of that goes in your pocket. You're going to be pretty incentivized to do a good job of it. Again, assuming you don't break things or you you build a bad product. So we add incentivize this other thing too. So how do we balance the different tools we have to incentivize people to do the things that are good for the company? So
0: I think Jose hit on something earlier that's probably important and it goes along with what he's saying right now. Maybe you, you want to do it for less. Oftentimes it's not so much doing all of it for less. It's what part of it can I do for less? You might have to spend the same, let's say per hour or per resource or whatever, but you can get a smaller subset of the product out, start gaining revenue, insights into what the users actually want, all of that stuff first. And then you can maybe afford to do the rest of it later on. I think that's often what, and I'm sure Steve is nodding, we hit that all the time. Everybody wants the Cadillac, right? But they pay us to come in, build this big old Cadillac, and we released it out to the world and nobody wants a Cadillac. They wanted a Tesla or whatever the case may be. If you use the analogy, they wanted something boiled down to a smaller subset. And we could have learned, oh, they wanted an electric motor instead of gas. We could have learned that for much, much less money.
4: Yeah, I think that's, that's one area where, you know, potentially smaller companies have an ad- advantage is really being able to individuate that hiring and recruiting process and identify what is that key thing I need here. And let me find the the best person possible for that particular need and make that decision first before being able to, or having to go on and figure out what I've got another hundred K left in budget. How do I spend that? I've got the key resource that I need, and then I can build up the rest of the parts around it once I've got that.
6: So is there something to be said here about uh, self-imposed scarcity? throughout an organization to say i may have a million but i'm only going to spend a quarter of that why just because i just want to see if that's possible you're self-imposing that somewhere does anybody encourage that should cfo hide money and only (laughs) only release what the little amount and see what he could get done with that or she just curious i'm not a cfo i don't know
3: i I think you're right the the cfo's incentive is to show the biggest margins so there is yeah like they clearly want to show the, the biggest profitability yeah. And
2: so the question, getting back to what Jose said, is like, how do we align engineering to those priorities so that we're all rowing in the same direction? Yeah. It's look, I don't think there's any great uh, genius answers here. I think it's just a question of trade offs and, and thinking very carefully about things.
1: I'm I mean, curious on one more thing. Have I mean, you guys had an experience to have uh, a really successful agency that you hire, I try to acquire them and be successful or trying to integrate, maybe merge something like that? Have you and you have plenty kind of academy that type of experience? I'll tell you, I've had, I had an experience where we, there's like a little tiny team of six, six people. and like, they're really recommended. We brought them in as a test, period. And they're trying to integrate it to the team. They're, they're completely different culture. didn't work out. And that's my experience. I'm just curious to you guys. I've
2: certainly seen to go the other way, where like the dev shop slowly colonizes more of the <laughs> original company to the point where there's nothing left except this shell of a company. I've seen that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think the problem... Part of the
0: the draw to people to come to an agency like mine or Stevens is that variability of client, right? So they get to move and see a bunch of different things. So buying an agency oftentimes is really not a great culture fit because those folks are wanting to be able to move from project to project periodically, and it usually isn't a great fit to go industry, if you will, uh, with those type of folks. They just don't enjoy it.
5: What about integrating the team, Stephen? Do you guys do you ever deal with clients who have your engineering team and they, we want to bring them on board as full-time part of the company. Like we've got to this point now where we need them and we want to acquire them as an internal asset as opposed to externally. Do you guys deal with that? I imagine that has to be some part of your business.
6: Conversations always come up with that. We've never gone through with that. Exactly for the point of what James is talking about. It's actually a huge deal when we are hiring and recruiting people. I make a big point about talking about the differences about a product company And a services contractor-based company is a complete different mentality. It's a different landscape. It's a different lifestyle, that type of thing. And yeah, sometimes customers will say, yeah, we want these folks. And we just, we have never gone through with that. I'm sure other folks have. Because you make a big deal from our perspective, the culture, you're part of us. And then all of a sudden, I'm selling you off to somebody else. Let's see. We don't want to do that. So other people may, but we don't do that.
0: Yeah, it it happens. Like you said, it comes up. Oftentimes what happens is in, in our industry, you get a lot of young folks start doing the the consulting thing and then as they get older and they have kids and they want a little more stability those are where those opportunities probably make a little more sense and they might say oh, i'd really love to go to client x i really enjoy working with that team i'd love to just stay here for the rest of the time and we've had those situations come up and, and we don't usually make a big fuss over it but we don't want some company hiring all of our staff away but when those situations come up we do work with our folks and, and make arrangements for that
4: you don't have that exact scenario here at Wendy, but we have seen some success working with, I don't know that you'd call them an agency per se, but a service called Upstack, similar to like TopTal or some of these other platforms out there in terms of using them for that sort of first layer of sourcing, being able to try before you buy. And then we've had a few folks that have integrated with the team and are in the process actually right now is potentially buying out some of those contracts and bringing them on full time. At least in that scenario, there's definitely some room for success and integrating folks.
6: If you're after that, you should, whoever you integrate with or talk to, contract to hire would be the term you're looking for. Like I want a contract, but my intention here is if this works out, I will seek to hire this person in six months or something.
0: You usually pay some level of finder's fee, percent of salary or something like that, or some fixed amount. That's not our model and it sounds like it's not Steven's model, but yeah, there are absolutely right. companies out there who do that and that's just, just how they work. So it, it does exist.
3: Now, actually, I know a lot of big companies do that and they it's quite effective for them. They hire a temp and then if they like them, they roll them over. It's essentially like an intern program almost. And it can be a nice little pipeline. That's another
2: big subject altogether is if you have the room to hire junior people, how to set up a good intern program is, I, I consider that still an incredibly underused technique for building a great workforce that has incredible staying power and and all and culture and all this stuff. I see relatively few companies fully taking advantage of that avenue. So that's pretty exciting too.
6: Yeah,
0: the, the, the problem with that, not that I disagree, but the problem with that where it comes into play is when you have poor quality. Be careful of who you have training those uh, younger folks. Make sure you have some good quality folks for training them. More importantly, the code also trains them. They see what's in the code. They emulate what's in the code. You have to be very careful to make sure you you teach them the right coding habits and whatnot. But absolutely, yeah. You I, I
5: think you have to budget for your mentorship, right? You have to be willing to take one of your senior people or your mid level people and say, "We're going to dedicate some of them as a resource to training the." Ju-. I've seen so many companies where they bring in junior devs and then they just throw them on that like they never learn anything and they put no effort into training them. And so they don't grow as an asset to the company and they don't grow as developers either. And it, it doesn't work out.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like at some level, a lot of internship programs get a bad, ra- bad rap because companies just do a terrible job with them. And so then it kind of, <laughs> it's a problem. But I totally agree with you, James. Like positive feedback and negative feedback are both very, uh, very powerful <laughs>
3: But, yeah. but in a tight labor market, it's one of the smartest things you can do for sure. Get get the talent before anybody else.
4: Seeing a lot of companies I talk with that are seeing some success with sort of internal intern programs as well. So taking folks from support or design or other areas that have an interest in tech. And so they already have that subject matter expertise of the, the product or whatever. And then coaching them up to, to actually do code and seeing some good success. with uh, that. Yeah, I think we've gotten didn't actually,
0: Paul, on what you're saying. We, we hire some junior folks and, and try to train them up. But the with the market, at least in the past year and a half, the way it's been, those salaries bump up so doggone fast. It's almost like you have to give them a raise every week just to make sure they're not going to go anywhere. Because we had a kid graduated from college in May of last year, and we were paying him a salary. He got approached by a West Coast company. And in October, five months out of school, doubled his salary.
5: It's tough to come up, up with that stuff. Those incentives kick in, Augustine, right? Like that, the the built in food court and the ping pong tables and I don't That stuff I, I don't think works quite as well as it did a few years ago with the remote stuff. So, so yeah. There's gonna be a whole new set of incentives coming out there. Yep.
6: Yeah, I don't know it doesn't matter what you do but if someone's like, I'll double your salary it's, it's very difficult to not accept that <laughs> yep. with five
0: months experience
2: it's so not like we were paying them rock bottom alright guys this has been good it's been instructive I enjoyed uh, the variety of conversation we had today so yeah let's do this again in a couple of weeks thank you Austin thank you everybody
0: we had Stephen we had Chris we had Jeff we had Tracy thank you so much everybody for contributing Remember, we're 7CTOs, a collective of CTOs who help each other every month with our challenges. Check us out at 7CTOs.com. If you want to join our Slack community, go to cto.studio and hopefully we'll get to chat soon. See you next week.